Good morning, church. You can open up your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. We're in the second half of the chapter this week. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. Isn't it exciting when someone you love comes to visit you? Maybe someone you have not seen in a long time, an old friend, a family member, someone who comes from another country to visit you here in Abu Dhabi. You know, in the last year, we've had to all wait and wait and wait to see our family members and friends back home in our other countries. Many of us have been unable to travel, and people have been unable to travel here. It's been hard. But it's very exciting, and the anticipation of waiting to see someone you love really gets you hopeful and excited. For my family, when my parents come, or when Michelle's parents come, the the kids' grandparents, that's the most exciting. The anticipation in our apartment is big. The kids are very excited because the grandparents bring presents. What are they going to bring? And when the grandparents come, we do all kinds of fun things. Here in the city, we go to the palace. We go to nice restaurants. We have a good time together. And so we get everything ready when they're about to arrive. It's exciting. We get their room ready. We get their bed ready. The girls will put signs up on the door. Welcome, Grandma and Grandpa. It is just a thrill of excitement and hope when the grandparents are about to visit. There is high anticipation. Well, brothers and sisters, I've got some news for you this morning. The king is coming. Our king is coming. And he's coming not just for a visit. Our king is coming, and he's going to do some amazing things that we will see in our text today. So my hope and prayer is that you will be filled with excitement and hope and anticipation about our king who is coming. So let's read our text, Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 17. It'll be on the screen for you. Verse 9, rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people 
For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is God's word for us this morning. So you saw in the opening verse, verse 9 of this passage, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. That's what this passage is about. It's about what will the king do? What will he be like? Who will he be? The king that is coming to you. So this morning, we're going to look at four questions about the king. We're going to answer four questions about this king that is coming. And the first question is this. Who is he? Who is the king of Zechariah chapter 9? In the Old Testament, the king was a big deal. Most of the empires at that time had kings or some kind of sovereign supreme ruler over their people and over their land. And in the Israelites' history, they asked God for a king, and God gave them a king. And there were many kings of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. That's why there's the two books called First and Second Kings. It's all about the kings. There's lots of kings for the Jews in the Old Testament. Most of them were not so great. But there was one king who stood out above them all. One king who was called a man after God's own heart. Do you know which king that was? King David. King David, probably the most famous king of Israel in the Old Testament. Now David, of course, was far from perfect. He committed some big sins. But overall, David was a picture of what the Lord's king should look like. And he was pointing the people towards an even better king that would come. In fact, God made a promise to David that in his line of descendants, an even greater king would come and that his reign would be forever. Now here at the time of Zechariah, the people have been in exile for 70 years. The Jews have had no king. They've been serving Gentile kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Cyrus. They've had no king of their own. They've been outside of their land. So you can imagine when they hear this oracle in chapter 9, behold, your king is coming to you. How do you think they would have felt? They would have been excited. Yes, our king is coming. He's going to restore us. He's going to do all these amazing things. Our king is coming. We've been waiting 70 years for our king to come. And before that, most of our kings weren't that great anyway, but we're, we're ready for our new king. They would remember King David, how King David conquered their enemies and brought the nation together. They would maybe remember King Solomon and all of his wealth and how King Solomon built the temple. Their excitement would be huge at hearing this. But then we get a bit of a surprise from the Lord here in chapter 9. He says the king will come humble and riding on a donkey. A donkey. This is different from the warrior King David or the wealthy King Solomon. You would expect the new king to ride in on a great war horse to ride in on something triumphant, not a lowly animal like a donkey. It's mainly used for carrying cargo and things. 
Yet this king is humble and riding on a donkey. I mean, I think about it, if, if this happened today, you would expect a king to come in the big black SUV with license plate number one. That's a vehicle for a king. Or maybe if he likes speed, he'll go with a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, something like that. But no, this king, it's like if he rented a bicycle on the Corniche for 20 dirhams and rode in on that. And what kind of a king would do that? The king is riding in on a donkey. And this donkey shows us that the king is humble and peaceful. The text says he is humble in verse 9. So he's not some high and mighty tyrant who rules from far away, barking out orders and commands. No, he's a humble king near to the people. He's approachable. He's kind. He serves his people. He cares about his people. And he's not coming to make war. He's coming to make peace. In verse 10, it says he cuts off the chariot, the war horse, and the bow. These are the main weapons of war at that time. He removes them, and he speaks peace to the nations. He's bringing peace. In fact, it says he will bring peace from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So this king is not only for the Jews. He will be king over the whole earth, over all of the peoples. So who is this king? This king on a donkey? Well, at that time, they may have been thinking it was Zerubbabel. You remember Zerubbabel? We have seen him here in Zechariah. He's the governor of the Jews at this time. He's their leader, and he's a pretty good leader. He helps restore the people to their land. But he's not the king. He's not the king of Zechariah 9. And can I just say, it's a good thing that Zerubbabel is not the king. Because can you imagine singing our worship songs to King Zerubbabel? All hail the power of Zerubbabel's name. That wouldn't work. The king is Jesus. Jesus is the king of Zechariah 9. Jesus is the king riding in on a donkey. All four of the gospels show us this. On what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And all of the crowds, they put down their palm branches before him. And do you know what they said? Hosanna to the son of David. As he rode in on that donkey, they saw he's the one from the line of David. We think he's the king. He's the one who's going to restore all of this. Jesus is the humble, peaceful king on the donkey. Jesus is the righteous king who brings salvation, as it says here in Zechariah 9. Jesus is the king who reigns from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. It's King Jesus. He fulfilled this prophecy 500 years after it was written. Matthew and John both quote this verse in their Gospels. That's who Zechariah is pointing to. It's Jesus as the king. So that's the answer to our first question. Who is the king? It's Jesus. The second question I want to ask today is why did God send a king? Why is God sending a king? Why is he doing this? And I want to look at verse 11, where we see a very important phrase in this text. In verse 11, we see this phrase, 
says, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Because of the blood of my covenant with you. That's why God is doing all this. He has made a covenant with his people. He's committed to them by blood. In the Old Testament, covenants were ratified or sealed by blood. We see God do this many times. You think back to God's covenant with Abraham. There were animals that were killed and split in two. And then God passed through the pieces of the, of the blood. The blood sealed the covenant. You think about it, Passover. How did God save Israel from Egypt? He told the Jews to put blood over the doorposts so that they would not be killed, and then they were saved. And then the clearest example of this is Zechariah is pointing back to Exodus 24, when God gave the law to Moses and to the Jews at Mount Sinai. It says this, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God sealed his covenants with blood and it showed how committed and faithful he is to his covenants. It shows that he would not abandon his people. He would not abandon his people. Hey, maybe that's the one sentence that you need to hear today. God does not abandon his people. He did not abandon them in the Old Testament. And he does not abandon his people today. We are his people today. Again, this phrase, blood of the covenant, points to God's covenant with us now. And the blood that was shed was Jesus' blood sealing our covenant with God. Just five days after the crowd said Hosanna to the son of David, the crowds were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the king who rode in on a donkey was hanging on a cross, shedding his blood. And through his blood that was shed, he was paying the price for our sins. He was taking the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And he was establishing God's new covenant with his people, with people from sea to sea, for Jews and Gentiles, through the blood of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus as your king, if you've put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, then you are in covenant with God and he will not abandon you. He won't let you go. And when you have doubts about that, when you are afraid, when it feels like God is far away, you can look back to the cross and remember the blood that Jesus shed to seal the covenant for you. He won't abandon his covenant. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to urge you to put your faith in him today to enter into this covenant, this relationship with God. You do it by faith, by believing in what Jesus did. By believing that Jesus is your Savior. You, you don't pay money to get into covenant with God. You don't pray special prayers. You don't come to church to get into covenant with God. No, you believe in the King that God sent. You believe in the King who rode in on the donkey and died on the cross. And that his blood paid for your sins. And then you are in that covenant with God. If you're here today and you've never heard that before, we'd love to talk with you after the service or call me, email us. We'd love to talk more about how you can join God's covenant people through Jesus, the King.
So this is why God sent a king. It's because of the blood of his covenant. He's faithful to his covenants and he's establishing a new covenant with us through the blood of Jesus. Let's move on now to our third question to look at. And it's more of what will the king do? What will the king do and accomplish when he comes? That's what we see in the rest of this passage. We've already seen a little bit of that in the first few verses, but we're going to see more now. And what will he do? The answer is he will fight for his people. He will battle for his people. In the rest of this passage, we see battle language. And we see that God will fight the battles. Now, this may seem strange. You might be thinking, I thought the king was bringing peace. That's what it said in verses 9 and 10. He's a peaceful king. He's riding in on a donkey. Now, in verses 13 to 16, we are seeing some intense battle language. So what's going on here? Well, the king will establish his peace by destroying his enemies, by destroying all evil. When Jesus came the first time, he came humble and peaceful riding on a donkey. But we know that he's coming a second time. And it's not going to be on a donkey that time. So let's look at some of this language in verses 13 to 16 to understand this. Verse 13, we see God bringing his people together again. Judah and Ephraim will be like the bow and the arrow. That's what it says. Judah is the southern kingdom. Ephraim's the northern kingdom. They split centuries before this. They separated their nation, and now God is saying, I'm going to bring them back together for the battle, like a bow and an arrow. That's how close they will be. A bow without an arrow is useless. An arrow without a bow is useless, but God's going to bring them together for the fight. God unifies his people and uses them in the battle. We see also in verse 13, God will stir up the sons of Zion, that's Israel, against the sons of Greece. Last week, Pastor Wiley talked a lot about the historical context with Greece and Alexander the Great coming and how God protected Israel. So we see how this is partly fulfilled in how God protected the nation of Israel from the time of exile up to Jesus. The Greeks never destroyed the temple. They fought against the Jews and they won some battles against the Jews, but they never destroyed the temple. And the Jews didn't go into exile again like they did under the Babylonians. It's the Romans who came and destroyed the temple later after Jesus. So we see this partly fulfilled at that time. And it's interesting that it says Greece because at the time of Zechariah, Greece was not a very powerful nation. But this isn't a, a powerful and true prophecy of the rise of Greece that would come and how the Lord would protect his people. Then in verse 14, we see the battle language intensified all the more. Listen to this. The Lord, that is Yahweh, will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. Have you seen lightning? Kids, you get about one time per year in Abu Dhabi that you can see lightning. That's about how often we get a storm here. We had one like a month ago. I saw a little bit of lightning. Lightning is so powerful. It strikes so fast. You don't know where it's going to strike. And if you get struck by lightning, what's going to happen? You're probably going to die. God is striking with his arrow like lightning. 
There's no chariot or horse that will withstand the arrow of lightning from God, from the warrior king. This is battle language. It goes on to say, The Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, will sound the trumpet and march forth in the whirlwinds. It is the Lord who marches forth in battle. The Lord is the one leading the army. He will go out and lead the fight against the enemies. Verse 15, The Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, will protect them, will protect his people. And then the people of God shall devour their enemies. It even says the people of God will drink and roar as if drunk on wine and be full like a bowl. They will be drenched like the corners of the altar. What does that mean? Well, this goes back to the the altar in the book of Leviticus when the priest would sprinkle blood of the animals on the altar for purification, and would even pour out blood in front of the altar. So this is going to be a bloody battle. This is violent and bloody imagery here. And we will roar as if drunk on wine as we devour our enemies with our king leading out into the battle. What an image this is of God destroying evil and destroying enemies when the king comes back. And brothers and sisters, King Jesus is coming back. We see similar language to Zechariah 9 in Revelation 19. Here's a picture of what this will look like at his second coming. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When this happens, when Jesus comes back on the white horse, it will be awesome. And he will destroy his enemies. And all the wrath of God against sin and evil will be poured out. If Jesus is your king, this is really good news. As we face so much struggle, so much sin, so much oppression, so much persecution at times, as we face all the trials of this world, it brings us great comfort to know that Jesus is coming back and he's going to crush all of that. And this imagery from Zechariah 9 and from Revelation 19 encourages our hearts that evil will not stand in the end. God will win. His king will win. And if you are on his side... It will be a joy. We will be roaring with joy. If you are not on his side, it's not going to be pretty. If you're on the evil side, 
If you don't know Jesus and worship Jesus as your king, then you will be crushed. We see this in the text. Jesus is going to come back and do all of these things. The fourth question I want to look at here is, how should we respond? How should we respond to all of this? A few points I want to make here. First, I want to remind you that we are in a battle right now. It is a spiritual battle. We are still following the king on the donkey, humble and peaceful. We are to be humble and peaceful people. Sister Sarah read Ephesians 6 earlier. What is our armor? What is our fight as Christians under Jesus? It's a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. That's our battle right now. So don't fall into a trap of taking verses like Zechariah 9 and thinking we need to go to war with people and pick up rockets and guns and tanks and all of that. That's a bad interpretation of this. This battle will all happen when Jesus returns. That's when Jesus will do what we see in Revelation 19. For now, as Christians, we're called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to wait patiently for our Lord's return, and to seek to bring people in, to bring people to our side by the power of the gospel. The weapons that God gives us in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith. These are our weapons in the spiritual battle that you are in right now. I fear that too many Christians in this time of pandemic have grown lazy and complacent in the spiritual battle. You are in a battle, brother or sister. There's an enemy who wants to take you down wants you to be lazy and complacent, to wants, wants to isolate you from the church, wants you to fall away into sin, wants you to close your mouth and never share the gospel with anyone. That's what the enemy wants to do. Yet God has given us tools and resources to help us in the fight, to help us win our spiritual battles now so that we can be ready for the return of Jesus later. And then the other response that I want to point you towards in this text is a response of great hope and anticipation. Let's go back to these verses. Let, let me show you a few more things here. Verse 11, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is not talking about prisoners, prisoners who are guilty of crimes. This is talking about God's people who are imprisoned, who are oppressed and persecuted. Makes me think of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers. Makes me think of the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He was thrown into a pit by his enemies. And God is saying, all the prisoners for my sake, I will set free. I will bring freedom to my people when the king returns. Verse 12 he goes on and he says, O prisoners of hope, there's the hope, I will restore you double. The restoration for God's people will be huge. 
This is not a mathematical equation, like if you spend five years in prison, then he'll double it and give you 10 years of, of joy. Double here just means abundant, bountiful blessing, abundant, bountiful restoration. It will be a full and complete restoration of God's people. When Jesus returns and destroys evil, it, we won't even think about the suffering we went through. When we are with him in his kingdom, all the goodness of God will overshadow any trials we're going through now. For our light and momentary troubles are attaining for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I don't remember the reference on that one. 2 Corinthians something. It will be double. It will be abundant. God will restore his people. And the people in Zechariah are maybe thinking that the time is now and the new temple will be double the size of the old temple. But it wasn't. The new temple was not as good as Solomon's first temple. So clearly this is pointing to something even greater in the future. To the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, where the Lord himself is the temple. And one more thing I want to show you here that, that just builds our hope and excitement is that in verses 15 and 16, we see two kinds of stones. Do you see that? Two kinds of stones. In verse 15, there are the sling stones which are tread upon, stomped on, stepped on. The armies of God will roll through and stomp through on the enemies of God. The stones will be destroyed, tread upon. That's one kind of stone if you're an enemy of God. But then in verse 16, we see what God's people will be like. It says, we will be like jewels on a crown. We will shine. The people of God will shine like jewels on a crown. I think this idea is really cool. In fact, we see this theme in all of Scripture of stones and jewels uh, that, that really encourages us. I mean, even back in Genesis 2, in creation, there were precious jewels. There was gold and other precious stones in, in the creation in Genesis 2. Then later in the Old Testament, we see that on the clothing of the priests, there were special jewels to represent the people. There were two special stones that each represented six tribes for 12 total tribes of Israel. Precious jewels on the clothing of the priests. Then we see here in Zechariah 9 that, that the people of God will shine like jewels. We see in the New Testament in 1 Peter that the people of God are living stones in the household of God. That's you, that's me, that's us. We are living stones in the household of God. And then in Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes... The foundation of the city is 12 precious jewels. That's the foundation of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. So this idea of God's people shining like precious jewels shines to our hearts right now. Have you seen any precious jewels lately? I, I took my daughter out for ice cream at Marina Mall a month or so ago, and we passed by one of those fancy jewelry stores that I'd have to sell my car and my house and my arm and my leg in order to buy one of those jewels. So we're looking at these necklaces and bracelets, and, and the jewels are really nice. There's like rubies and diamonds and gold, and, and they're so small, yet so precious and valuable. And God's telling us that that's 
what we are like. We will shine like precious jewels in his kingdom. Praise be to God. So brothers and sisters, I hope that you see all the amazing things that will happen for the people of God when the king returns. That's why at the beginning of this text, it says rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughters of Zion. Rejoice and shout aloud. How great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Verse 17. God is calling us to rejoice with hope and shout aloud for our coming king. He came once on the donkey, humble and peaceful. And we need to be humble and peaceful today. And he's coming again on the white horse to save us, to protect us, to destroy evil, and to bring us into his covenant kingdom forever. That's worth getting excited about. Let's pray. Father, you are such a good God that in your great plan for your people, you have brought, you have sent King Jesus to fulfill all of your promises of Zechariah, to fulfill all of your promises of the Old Testament, Jesus came on a donkey, went to the cross, sealed us by the blood, bringing us into covenant, rising from the dead, sending us the Spirit to fill us, to give us victory today. And Lord, give us hope, give us patience, give us excitement, help us to rejoice that you are coming soon. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.